Welcome to this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. I'm Greg Johnson with Sustana Fiber, and I'm here once again with my co-host, Dr. Marta Pazos. So, Marta, with the holidays season upon us and Christmas right around the corner, how's your holiday shopping coming along? So, actually, no, Greg. Um, this is causing so much stress right now for me because I have no idea what I'm going to gift. Uh, but this year, I'm going to continue doing what I have been doing for the past few years, which is just go with uh, more sustainable and uh, a, a better for the planet way of gifting, which uh, I know now that there is companies like uh, the, the, the one whose founder we're interviewing today that um, have uh, been able to commercialize those amazing crafts that women are doing all over the world, in, especially in those uh, developing countries. Exactly, Marta. And what better way to explore sustainable gift ideas than with our guest today, Melissa Seavey, the founder and CEO of the Ethic Collective. Despite modern manufacturing's use of AI and robotics, handmade products are still highly cherished, not only for their overall beauty and quality, but in the case of the Ethic Collective, their story is part of the appeal, too. Based in Utah, the Ethic Collective employs women from all over the world, including here in the U.S. The artists strive to better themselves economically and also help the environment by producing beautiful handcrafted items ranging from blankets and bags to jewelry and accessories and much more. Melissa, it's great seeing you again. We're really grateful for your time today. And thank you for visiting with us. All right. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting to talk with like-minded people. So I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much, Melissa, for, for, for joining us today. So tell me, what um, inspired you to create such a fantastic uh, idea of a company such as Epic? I, I am already a fan. I have to tell you that because this is amazing and amazing. We definitely need more people with that kind of initiative in the world. So what, what made you do this? Thank you so much. Um, so where this all started, in the summer of 2009, I lived in Uganda for a few months. I was working for a nonprofit there. And um, my background is actually in public health. So we were doing a lot of health uh, outreach to different villages and communities. And one of our initiatives was teaching um, people about disease prevention through hand washing with soap. And very early on, actually, in the project, I came to the realization that many of the people we were teaching these classes to could not afford soap. And so that kind of made me sit back and think, what are we doing here? And, and why did we come to this? why this solution? This is not solving a problem that people have. This is not their number one problem. People need jobs. People need consistent work so that they can buy soap. And, um, and so with that perspective, myself and a couple of colleagues over the course of the summer, we got to know many of the women in the community in Uganda, bright, capable women. 
And many of them had the full economic burden for the home. And yet there's very few jobs for women. And so we um, kind of put our resources together and we started a nonprofit at the time um, employing Ugandan women to make jewelry that we sold here in the US. So that was kind of our, our beginnings. That was a, a nonprofit that ran for many years and still runs today, um, but it was very non-profitable for many years. And, um, but that kind of uh, catapulted me into this artisan space where we really got to know the, the plight of artisans around the world. Um, so, so artisan craft is actually the second largest industry employing people in the developing world, second only to agriculture. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people and the majority of these are women. And so this is a, a sector that, um, that is very open to exploitation uh, because people can come in and, and you know, middlemen can come in and pay very little to the artisans and then make big markups. Um, and so we kind of have built a company around working directly with artisans, ensuring fair pay, consistent work, so that they can buy soap and send their kids to school and have nutritious food. Um, and so many of these issues associated with poverty uh, can be helped through economic empowerment. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I love that idea in, in especially considering what you just mentioned that so many households in developing countries fall under women's responsibilities without resources and how much more could the econo the economies of those countries develop if if those women had that kind of income right the, the, the power to 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 develop that economy right amazing statistics show that in the developing world on average men are spending 10 to 15% of their income on their families and women spend about 90%. And so it is, it's a very low hanging fruit to, uh, to provide employment for women to have an effect on the family level and the community level um, and really, really get at breaking generational cycles of poverty. That's fantastic, Melissa. Now I know you have a, a pretty robust uh, mission statement and, and one of your your values obviously is sustainability could you tell us just a little bit um share with us both your professional as well as your personal view on sustainability sure um so i i live in utah and i love the outdoors and just I grew up in Southern Utah near Zion National Park, Red Rock, and now I live in Northern Utah with huge mountains in the Rockies. And, and I love this and I wanna preserve the beauty around us. And so much of that comes through uh, thinking about how we personally can be sustainable as well as in business. Um, so there's, there's so much that we personally can do, uh, but then also, I mean, the biggest, perpetrators of hurting our environment, our business, businesses. And so, um, yeah, I just really feel like this is, this is our shot to preserve this beautiful earth that we have. And so, um, both personally, professionally, I'm, 
I'm not perfect, but absolutely am trying that that's been one of my, uh, my New Year's resolutions each year has, has included some more sustainable things I can personally do. Um, and then as a business, we're working on things that we can, we can do to, to continually move towards uh, better options. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with what you mean. And I, I like to also point out the fact that businesses are not just, you know, run by themselves, right? Who are, who is truly responsible for those businesses causing that damage, but, people. So it, it really starts with all of us, right? Like the, the responsibility must be shared. This is something that I always try to communicate to everybody. It's not just the CPG's fault that we are causing all these. It's all of us. I understand that some of the, the artists that you employ uh, or, you know, who's they do a lot of the, the, the work that you can commercialize under ethic, are it used to be sex workers, right? So how how do you manage to pull them out of there, and what brought you to to do that, right? To to disentangle such a complex and sometimes dangerous, right? The types of network. Yeah. So how we work generally is that we connect in with established artisan groups, and so. This is a, a sector that there are a lot of women in uh, that have been caught in enslaved in sex trafficking, and they're really great organizations in their own countries that are doing it the right way. And so, as you ask, like how how do we work with them? First of all, we get out of the way to allow them to do their work. So, for example, one organization that we work with in Nepal was started by a local woman there who had had lived on the streets as a teenager, and she got to know uh, the plight of girls and women in her country. And she started this shelter, uh, and she works closely with um, with government officials with police officers and she knows who she can trust in each of those um, and so i think sometimes when foreign entities come in if they drop in and sometimes do these really uh extravagant sting operations as foreigners uh it's much less effective than those who are actually working on the ground who know the situation and uh know the partners that that can really work to holistically bring these women and girls to hope and healing. And so this particular organization, Raksha Nepal, they have actually several programs that help, uh, that train women to have other sources of income so that they, you know, even after going through a rehabilitation program, and then when they're turned over on their own and don't have skills, what do they know? than the work that they had before. And so they have a really robust program. And, and one of them is uh, is a sewing and a tailoring training program. And so um, over the past few years, we've worked with their program to sew uh, several different types of bags um, that we've then connected to conscious customers in the US. And that's been a really beautiful program. And and how we they've structured it is that a fair fair pay goes to the artisans that make it and then a portion goes to support the shelter and so um, a couple of years ago we did a, a large project with 
over a hundred thousand bags. And these are just like small drawstring bags that they, and, and these are women that have graduated from the program. And so they were in six villages in the surrounding area and they would sew them and then they would all gather them into Kathmandu for quality control. And that order alone was able to provide employment for, uh, for over a hundred women and it supported their shelter for over a year, uh, paid all the expenses for their shelter. And so it was able to have that dual impact, which was really, really beautiful. Um, and, and empowering these women are making money and so they can support their families in a dignified way. And, and so we've really loved that partnership. Yeah. You know, it's actually, this is one thing that I constantly tell everybody, no matter how I, no matter how much I know that we are still not in an equal society, even in developed countries, I cannot be thankful enough for the fact that I can actually make my own money, right? I always, always, always tell girls, get an education, get your own money, because those are the things that nobody's going to take away from you. Well, the money, yes, but the education and the training, that's for you to keep always, right? Yeah. Having skills, having the ability of making your own money. Absolutely. It's just priceless. One, another group that we work with is right here in Salt Lake City is a group of Afghan refugee women. Um, and all of them actually learned sewing in their home country and are very skilled seamstresses. And so we did a project with them over the past year and, um, the name of their organization, which they came up with, uh, we, we just started working with them uh, at their very beginning. So we were kind of, we, we've been working together with them to, to stand up this group of 26 women. Uh, but the, the title they chose kind of uh, in connection with what you're just saying, their group is called Free Women. And I just love that, that through economic empowerment, they are free. And even if, um, some of them, you know, even in their marriages, there may still be um, barriers for their freedom, even in this country. But when they can have money that they made, there is this source of freedom. And um, it's really fun to hear them, what they're buying with the money that they made and um, for their families, for themselves, being able to pamper themselves a little bit and um, but then also investing in um, sewing machines so they can do more of these orders. And, and so I just really love that. It's freedom comes through, uh, particularly for, for women that have been in societies that, that they don't have a lot of choice over their lives um, through having access to, to employment that can break a lot of those barriers. Well, that's tremendous work um, that you're doing, Melissa. Um, Melissa, on another note, um, I know you're somewhat familiar with uh, Sustana Fiber and our recycle pulp that's used in all kinds of sustainable food and beverage packaging from paper cups and carry-out containers to bags and even microwavable sleeves. But I know I mentioned it earlier, um, in terms of sustainability for what you're doing at the Ethic Collective, I know you've taken great interest in, in taking a look at local materials, trying to remove any types of chemical processing that goes on and some of the, the goods that are made for you. Could you describe for our audience a little bit about 
how you've done that uh, in terms of trying to help the environment by being particular about what goes into your products? Absolutely. So what's really cool about indigenous craft is it's typically made from the earth. Uh, but the the problem can be when you know def deforestation is happening and and when things are not resources are not managed and so we um for anything that's made from a natural fiber we ensure that there are all the certifications from the local government the ministry of agriculture um that it is not um you know propagating uh, deforestation uh, or you know land degradation and and so we we ensure that but then also many of these materials are very interesting uh, one one material that we use in Uganda and we actually use this for our packaging uh, for the majority of our jewelry that comes out of Uganda it's called bark cloth it's made from the bark of the matuba tree and it's a very traditional uh, material that was worn by the the royalty of the Buganda tribe, that was the ruling tribe of, of Uganda. And uh, so the tree is not harmed in the, it, in the removal of the bark. So they remove the bark, boil it, lay it out in the sun for one to two months. And it becomes this kind of, it, it feels like people think it's leather, um, but it is just tree bark. Um, and so it's a really cool material that we use and make little pouches that the jewelry goes inside. And so that's kind of a, a really sustainable um, packaging option that we've we've done there. Um, and another example is uh, our work with olive wood workers in Palestine. Um, so the the olive tree is is very important to that region of the world and it's actually a a symbol of peace which that you know people on all all sides of of the conflict are are ultimately hoping for and um these woodworkers they uh the the wood that is used so one of our more popular items is um like cutting boards or olive wood spoons and um, they do not they're actually not allowed to cut down olive trees so it's only um, the the branches that have been cut off for pruning or when a tree dies so some of these trees are over a thousand years old um, and so yeah so so I mean just think about the history that so many world religions are tied into that area of the world and these trees are are have lived through all of it um, or so much of it. Um, yeah, so beautiful product that people love and it has a really special story of sustainability and of, of empowering a, a, a group of people that, has, that have lived through so much conflict. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I love those, those packaging ideas. And you know what, I'm actually from Spain. I'm from the North, but um, I, I love the, the landscape of, of, you know, the, the, the olive trees when it's like these, these like very green circles in that very red, uh, dirt, right? Mm -hmm. It's just so beautiful. I'm from oh, the yes. opposite side and definitely we don't have those, but I do, <laughs> I do know the importance of olive trees. That's mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so tell us what, uh, what do you think paper plastic? 
we strive to go for uh, paper options for packaging whenever we can. Um, yeah. So, and then if we can go from, from even more local materials, we, we go for that. So yeah, papers, what we, how about we yourself in your, in your own life? Um, not just, in, not just for ethic, oh, sure. um, the, the business, but for, for your own life, what, what it is that you normally yeah. prefer. Yeah. I, I opt for, for paper when I can. And, um, uh, have learned a lot about recycling and I think I used to way over recycle, um, you know, and learning what, what actually can be recycled and what can't. Um, and so that's helped me to change my habits to actually know, um, actually this type of plastic is not recyclable. So avoiding that, um, has been something I've, I've been working on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, this is something that I keep telling people, unfortunately, the fact that um, a certain amount of plastic makes it to the material recovery facility doesn't mean that it's going to make it all the way and it's going to be sold and therefore recycled. A lot of it stops right there. So the numbers tell us that a certain amount of uh, plastic gets recycled, but that's not true. A certain amount of plastic gets collected. Um, in in on the other on the other side of the coin, we have paper, which actually has the ability of have so much value after so many cycles of being recycled. So it is definitely an advantage. Not to mention the fact that it's a lot easier to to recycle it. Mm. Right? Well, well, you're right, Martin. You can recycle paper up to about seven times too, or more, um, right? Like yeah. it, it really depends. Like I I think that that's one of those things where we are in the side of caution of saying, yeah, we. We can recycle it like seven times, but you can probably do a lot more than that, especially when you when it's going to go to corrugated, where, where there's like so much, so many layers, right? That for you sure, will, you will keep the sturdiness because of the construction, even though the paper the paper itself has already lost some of its mechanical strength. Right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, Melissa, you know we're all way too familiar now with shipping delays um, across the world. Um, how does that impact the Ethic Collective in terms of transportation, in terms of deliveries these days, of course, with the holidays upon us? And and what are you doing to sort of mitigate some of those challenges and overcome those uh, delivery delays? Mm -hmm. You know, I was just talking about this with my team, and it kind of seems like 2021 International Logistics are kind of similar to 2020. I mean, they're they're more similar than we hoped. We just we just are expecting it, and so whereas last year we were just blindsided, and so we had some huge shipments that were stuck stuck in port, were several weeks over deadline. Um, we had a large shipment coming out of Uganda that ended up being about five times what we had, it cost about five times what we had projected and budgeted for. So we just lost thousands of dollars on that order. Yeah. So, and then even just raw materials was difficult because governments were shut down. And so even procuring things. And, and as we all know, I mean, just materials that you would not have even expected would be affected uh, we had a, a large order of brass earrings in India and they couldn't get the brass. And um, yeah, it just 
it affects every part of the supply chain, right? And we definitely felt that. And and luckily we had some really wonderful partners, our, our customers that that understood and, and we put our heads together to figure out what we could do to get partial shipments so they could launch their products. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, in, in really beautiful ways, I, I, I appreciated that, that customers in a way that I think in another year would not have had the grace, but we just were all kind of like, we're in this together. So it, it turned out we got through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you certainly learned something, right? While at it. <laughs> yes. I mean basically we've just learned for this year we're you know, you asked how, how to mitigate these things. So much so much of it is out of our hands and so we just like our holiday orders have been coming in that we you know, we, we just got projects going way in advance, knowing that the delays could be there. So we actually like made deadlines this year because we were you know, gave ourselves several weeks of extra time. Good. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Again, lessons learned. So um, you're currently um, um, commercializing products, right, made by uh, women that are coming from several different countries, including the U.S., right? So how does your recruiting process go? Uh, how do you choose which artists you're going to uh, ask them to make a product and, 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 and ship it and commercialize it. Tell us, tell us some, some about that. Sure. In the beginning, it was groups that I had met while living abroad. So I spent probably a couple of years living in Uganda and, and East Africa. So getting to know groups there, uh, that's where we got to know Rwandan basket weavers. Um, and then have spent time living in Morocco, in India. And um, so actually was able to meet groups in person and see their work and and see their commitment to social impact within their communities. And now as we're scaling this model, um, and actually it was a very interesting result of COVID travel restrictions. We could not travel to monitor some of these really large projects and and it you know so it it forced us to just you know be in in touch with our artisans and really lean on on the leadership in country and they did great without us <laughs> and and that was amazing like we you know we said oh wow we we put way too much stock in in our own value of being there they know what they're doing way more than we do um and so <laughs> we really manage the you know, a lot, a lot of the international logistics details and, and on the front end, the, the design and communication with the customer. Um, but they've done amazing at, um, at really being able to manage really large orders. And, and many of them, it was the largest orders they'd ever had in COVID that we were able to connect them with, which was, was really special in that a lot of times, um, artisans, a big portion of their, um, of of their uh, ability to sell is to tourists. So tourism supports their their handcraft and with that completely obliterated, we were able to do some really large orders that that turned out to be uh, really, really great projects. That's great. You know, it's so good to hear that you you could compensate, you know, like that loss of their income due to the fact that people were not going there and going to their flea markets, right? So you could 
compensate for that. You're in about seven countries now, is that correct? We we actually are, are uh, in around 15, and that's rising. 15. We have wow. uh, we have several groups that are kind of in the queue to go through our vetting process. And actually, Marta, you'd asked about um, like how we onboard groups. So we we've developed a vetting process, and so we've all heard of fair trade. You know, fair trade certification. That's something that. Um, has become especially widespread in with coffee and chocolate. And that particular certification is a pretty high bar. And a lot of times family farms will have to sell out to a larger owner to be able to have the resources to get fair trade certified. And, um, and, and also that the handmade handcraft uh, industry doesn't quite fit into fair trade. Fair trade is more focused on farms and four-walled factories, whereas artisans mm. are a lot of times doing home work from home or, you know, s- small community groups. And so we've cu- we've built out a vetting system that's more of a stepped approach that an artisan group, initially, they, they just do some kind of basic reporting on their practices. So ensuring that um, they're not you know, employing children, that they're paying a fair wage, uh, that they have safe working conditions, uh, having them report on what kind of chemicals they're using, um, where they're sourcing their materials from, et cetera. So it's initially reporting and they can start working with us and start getting orders as with the agreement that they'll continue working for the next levels. So after reporting, then we kind of look at what they've reported and um, develop specific trainings or tools that they need to be able to um, strengthen those areas that they might be weak in um, and then turn those into policies within their organizations. And so if this, if they had to do all of that at once, it would be very difficult for them to get to that level, but that we kind of have this stepped approach, as long as they're like making progress towards these practices, um, then they can continue being within our network. And so, um, but we meet them through all different ways. Now there, there are a lot of like hand handmade artisan networks that we work through, um, to find artisan groups and, um, and then kind of have them come through this system. And, and so we're really working on making that system so that we can scale and, and really become a, a, a go-to platform for a, a, an artisan. We, we never have an exclusivity clause that they can only work with us. We encourage them to have as many outlets for selling their goods as possible. Um, but we're just one way that they can really connect with bigger buyers. And so, um, we, we hope that not only through working with us, not only will they have these orders, but that we can build their capacity to be able to work with, um, you know, Western buyers, which some of them, it's their first time doing that uh, when they work with us. And so we have a a big element, uh, a core element of our work is capacity building for these groups. Amazing. Um, You touched on this just a a little bit earlier, Melissa, what would you say in your day-to-day life, um, is something that you do for the environment uh, that's sustainably related that, that you're proud of? This is something I'm working on. And, and I think that's, you know, this is something I've been focusing on is uh, just thinking of the fast fashion industry. And um, there's, there's one thing like vetting out 
companies that do have good practices in their sourcing. Um, but then also just like, how can I, so to get personal, I'm, I'm uh, six months pregnant right now. And, um, and thank you. <laughs> and I just have been frustrated because I shouldn't have to buy maternity clothes. This is a short term run of wearing clothes meant for <laughs> my changed body. And, and so I, I reached out to friends to see like, Hey, do you have any of you kept your, you know, your, your maternity clothes? I just can't fit into anything. And I don't want to go and, and support fast, fast, fast fashion when this is a short term need. And so, um, have had a great response that way. Um, but in the beginning, I, I was looking for online marketplaces that might have, um, you know, used clothing and uh, maternity clothing and, and was coming up short. It was very difficult to find. It was just through more person to person interactions. I was able to, to find that. And, um, and yeah, it's not about it, it, like, for me, it's not about like not spending money. It's about like, I don't need to, to buy another, I don't need to create unnecessary um, clothing in, in the system, knowing that so much of it goes into, um, you know, into landfills and everything. So that's, that's one thing sure. I've been thinking about is sustainability and clothing. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm just like, listening to you thinking you would think that maternity clothing would be the one that you need the most used out, right? Cause it's like how, like you said, you're not going to wear it a long time. You know, you shouldn't. Maybe some people keep it for the next one, which would make sense, right? But, you know, looking at the birth rate of developed countries, it may not be, it's normally not the case, right? Yeah. If you use it twice in your life, then that might be, that might be just like as, as, as much as you get out of it. So I would think that there's definitely a need for use maternity clothes, right? Outlets, right. Who's who's gonna start that? Who's gonna start that startup? The the maternity clothes exchange. Maybe that'll be my next one. <laughs> <laughs> that that's actually a great great idea. You know, it's not something that really touches me very close because I don't have children. And I won't have children. But uh, but you know, I, I see definitely the value and and the need for it. You know what? Just a you know a little personal story here. Two years ago, three years ago, I I my New Year's resolution was I'm not gonna buy any piece of clothing because I was getting sick with myself with how many clothes I had, mm -hmm. and I realized that if I wanted something that I had seen at a magazine or a window or something like that, I would have something exactly the same in some shape or form, like hanging in my closet or in a in a shoebox, right? So I decided not to. I decided to do it for six months. And I am up in the third year already. The only time I bought clothes recently was because Delta lost my luggage. So I am, and, and, and obviously, and one thing that I do buy still is underwear and running shoes. I mean, that I'm not going to be <laughs> That's pretty you good. Do, right? That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, no, I, I was so proud. I, I keep telling that story because I am so proud of myself <laughs> with it. Yeah. And, a, and a, on another side story here, years ago, they actually used to have paper clothing. And one of the airlines, uh, U.S. Airlines, actually experimented um, with flight attendants having clothing made out of paper. Their uniforms were made out of paper, a paper material. 
And um, I'm wondering, Melissa, maybe with that bark that you mentioned, oh, yeah. that you use for bark bags, uh-huh. I'm wondering if that could be transformed into um, a maternity dress or something. Oh, okay. Possibly. We're bringing the, we're bringing it all all together here. <laughs> innovation, innovation. Yeah. Right, Marta? <laughs> you know, I I, I do have a I do have a, a paper bag like a, a handbag made of paper that oh, somebody recently gave to me yeah just like one of those little like a purse that you can like bring the, the stuff that gets lost in your bigger tote right kind of like that i love it it's it's fantastic you just don't take it out um, in the atlanta rain well it is treated <laughs> right. so it's waxed you know oh, it, it okay. has like the treatment and all of that but oh. um but yeah no but it, that's a good point you don't even have to bring it in the rain just bring it outside and the humidity will get to it so now that we're actually talking about like buying and shopping and can you tell us what would be like one of the favorite gifts uh that people get uh from ethic and 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 buy and, and and give to other people or to themselves right i give to myself all the time too and on top of that which ones would you say that not they're not just the most popular with um with the the, the people but also where are the ones that you feel that you're contributing the most to lower carbon footprint and and do good things for the environment so we have beautiful woven baskets from Rwanda and they they actually um when you look at them so they're you know baskets are pretty general around the world indigenous cultures were making baskets for you know thousands of years the baskets from Rwanda i think are are among the most beautiful and they use um sisal so so it's called sisal fibers and it's actually from the agave leaves so they um and this this actually was a government program um after the rwandan genocide and um they did this mass planting of agave plants to uh to create jobs for women uh because these baskets these are traditional baskets um that they just like wanted to scale up to to provide uh work for so many widows that came out of that war and um so they take these large leaves and um kind of with a a a wood tool scrape away the green and it leaves just the the strings and those are then dyed and used and they look like they look like thread like they're they're shiny and they're really beautiful um and so that that's a really beautiful story of um hope and healing because uh, people from both sides of that conflict have come together into these weaving groups. Like they're, they are all mixed together and um, you're not allowed to be identified by those, those differing tribes. But when, when I was there um, a few years ago on a big project, um, it was beautiful to meet people and, and they were happy and, friendly and knowing that anybody over the age of you know anybody in their 20s had lived through that um just devastation and now they've come together with people that were on the other side and they're in these cooperatives making baskets that have very uh, a sustainable component um so that's those are those are really um a popular item uh anything olive wood people just love and and i've kind of talked about that um 
we we work with um, a group in Vietnam that makes stoneware mugs, plates, and that's a, a really, tr that's where stoneware began. So they have shards that are, you know, hundreds of years old, um, where they had that technology to make that um, from the earth. And um, so that's, that's a really beautiful one. Um, yeah, our, our Ugandan um, artisans in the beginning were sourcing a lot of their, uh, their beads within the country, but they were all coming from China. And we've moved away from that. Um, you know, so like, like small um, glass beads, pretty much they all come from China, no matter like where in the world they're being beaded. And so we've moved to clay that's locally mined. Um, and, and, and there's sustainable regulations around the, uh, the, the taking of that from the earth, that clay, but now they're making their own beads. And so that's been a, a really cool transition to see. So that's, that's a few of the things. That's great. Yeah. I am, I'm adding things to my list, you know, <laughs> that'll <laughs> be on your, your holiday shopping list. Martin. Yeah. Or just, you know, I stopped for myself. Like I said, that those sure. baskets sound amazing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm I always have like a bunch of stuff lying all over the place. So when I'm putting it in one of those baskets, it certainly sounds like much better idea than the boxes that I have them in right now. Well, we've covered a lot today, Melissa. And as we wrap up, um, just a, a quick two-part question. Um, number one, I'd love for you to just share, if you could, any new ideas uh, on the horizon, new products that you've got for the Ethic Collective. And two, if you could let our audience know how to contact you and your organization. Sure. So we just launched uh, just the last few weeks, um, a corporate gifting application where, and, and by the way, I don't know if I've, I've kind of made this clear. We on our marketplace, we actually don't sell to individual customers. We only do wholesale for, um, for companies generally, um, you know, companies are buying gifts for their employees. And so, so we have like minimum quantities of 50 or, or, uh, up from there, but, um, these companies can choose different items from around the world to put into a, a gift box that we then have packaged and, and then we'll, well, I'll give you an example of, of, uh, one of our, holiday gifting that we're doing for a venture capital firm. Uh, so they chose out um, a cashmere scarf made by people with disabilities in Nepal and a, a stoneware mug made in Vietnam and um, cacao, like brewing cacao that comes from Ecuador. And so it has this, a, each item has a story. And so we've created a card that will have a photo of each of an artist and representing each group and a little bit about the story behind the product. And then on the other side is their holiday message. And that's, we, we've did some, some of these um, gift boxes last year and we had companies say, we give gifts every year and we've never actually had anybody respond and say something about them. But people were like, this is so cool. When, when, um, company that was focused on women's issues. They gave that out. And we had items that were specifically only made by women and 
so they their customers were so excited like this is you living your values and and the thing is companies don't have to donate a penny this is budgets they already have so it's just choosing to go from something that you may not know the sourcing of or that has little meaning to something that has a lot of meaning and has impact and so um so that kind of gift box application is something that has been really fun and it's a way that most companies can get involved so you know companies that may not have products the the main work that we have have been doing over the last couple of years is creating product lines for companies so they can like sell a, a handmade item that goes along with their um, whatever else they're selling. So if we're creating a baskets that they then put their, you know, um, skincare products in. And so it, it comes with that Rwandan story or, um, an oil diffusing bracelet for a company that sells essential oils. So things that can go along with their products and give more meaning. Um, we do that, but this, um, gifting most companies gift. And so that's been a really fun, um, way to, to be able to collaborate and, and let many companies get involved. And, and so that's been really fun. So that's, that was, let's see, that was your first question. And then, right. Oh, and then how to get in contact with us. So we're ethic collective. That's E T H I K. So like ethics, but with a K instead of a C ethic collective, um, we're ethiccollective.com, uh, Instagram, ethic collective, uh, find us on all the social medias and yeah, that's, that's where we are. And what if, what if we want to buy something or we want to get something from you? Is there, is there any other way besides, um, I mean, you know, unfortunately I haven't worked for com any company that seems to have any ethics in their code. So <laughs> just by knowing me, I've got a hookup. So all oh, right, we'll chat. There you go. Good enough. <laughs> that would be, that would be great. No, I, I really, I really want to this year make a, you know, I'm, I'm one of those also that, um, the, the same commitment that I did for myself, I'm doing it for others. So I either don't gift, I maybe get, you know, a good bottle of wine sometimes, uh, or actually make something because I am a, I am a crafter myself. So I lately, lately they normally get some whatever cosmetics I'm working on right now. Oh, so. awesome. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I'll put you on the list. Oh, great. <laughs> well, well, Melissa, we have loved having you. Um, it, it's really been a pleasure. Um, you have such an inspirational company, The Ethic Collective. I, I'm sure our audience has been captivated by you and, and the story of your amazing artists. But we really are grateful once again for your time and uh, happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas and all that. And congratulations on your new baby, your upcoming baby too. Thank you. Thank you. I have my my business baby and my human baby. So <laughs> right. all, the, all, all the things. And they, they're all very demanding, I'm sure. Well, you don't know about the, the human one, but, uh, but raise yourself, right? That's what they say. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. I am so deeply touched by your story. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this month's edition of Pulp Nonfiction, the paper and packaging podcast. We look forward to seeing you next month. But in the meantime, if you would like more information, please be sure to visit sustanafiber.com.
And don't forget to subscribe and please give us a good rating and a good review. We want to keep bringing this to you and that is the best way that you can help.